All righty, good morning, everybody. Repeat after me. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Welcome to those of you who are in the parking lot. Welcome to those of you who are at home. Quick word to the teenagers in the room. There's been a lot of drama with Petty John over the last few weeks. It's canceled. It's on. It's canceled. It's on. We're not going down to Medill to do camp this year, but hopefully you already know this. We're doing Petty John 2.0. Uh, Brian and Logan and Curtis and so many others on the youth team are helping pull this off. It's at Oklahoma Christian this week, every evening, starting tomorrow from 5 to 11. I was texting Brian this morning. If you're a teenager and you still want to go to that, there are some spots left. You're welcome to text uh, Brian or Logan if you want to go to Petty John uh, 2.0 this week. Now, we've been in a series called Beyond a Building, and we're going through metaphors of what uh, the church is described as in Scripture. So let's do a little test of memory. Uh, the first few weeks, actually, we talked about one primary metaphor. What was that? First metaphor was... The body. Everybody say the body. Church is the body. Uh, the second metaphor we talked about, Brian Plum delivered that message. And it starts with an F. Do you remember what that one was? The family. Good. Everybody say the family. And then last week, I did the third metaphor. Anybody remember what last week was? Okay. 10% of you remember. That's great. It's good, good preaching right there. Everybody say priesthood. Okay. Now, we used to have a banner. We got to use it for like one week in, inside the building, and we actually tried to put it up out in the parking lot, but then it blew over, and we didn't think that would send a good message to have the church banner blow, blow over. So we don't have that. But for those of you that remember what it looked like, does anybody remember what the fourth image on that banner was? It was the bride. Everybody say bride. So for a few minutes today, we're talking about the bride of Christ. This one, I got to be honest, depending on who you are, this... This metaphor means different things to different people. If you're a girl, you probably like this one a little bit more than if you're a guy. Because girls, either you already got married or maybe you're thinking about one day, the day that you will get married, or at least you can relate to how other women experience being the bride. I got to be honest, I'm a guy. I don't want to be a bride. Like doesn't doesn't really sit well with me. In fact, the other day we were showing our kids pictures of our wedding, and we have all these pictures of Mary three, four, five hours before the ceremony, getting ready and getting her nails done and getting her dressed and getting her hair and her makeup. And then finally, a picture of me popped up. It's about forty-five minutes before the wedding starts, and I am sitting in my mesh shorts and my t-shirt eating a large Subway sandwich. It's just, that's just how I roll. I don't want to be a bride. Never really had a desire to do that. And yet, this metaphor is in the Bible. What exactly does it mean for the church to be the bride? So if you have a Bible, if you're at home, you're welcome to open this up, Ephesians 5. If you're in the parking lot, you're welcome to open up your Bible or phone. This is an amazing passage. And we're going to talk about it for just a few minutes. And so what the passage does in, is in Ephesians 5 is it sets up two ideas, and then it, it really goes back and forth between the two. The first thing that the passage sets up 
is it talks about Jesus and his own relationship with the church. So if you're on the sides, you probably can't see this, but this is just a picture of Jesus with some of his followers. So it's a picture of what we would think of as church, Jesus and his church. The passage also talks about marriage. And so I'm going to put this up there. It's just a married couple. And so it's really interesting because this passage, it goes back and forth between these two over and over and over. And as I studied this passage, I kept asking myself, okay, is Ephesians 5 primarily about the church with marriage being the main illustration? Or is this passage about marriage with church being the main illustration? And I got to be honest, after studying this quite a bit, after reading multiple commentaries, I'm not exactly sure which is which. In fact, I, I want you to just see with me how much both themes are prevalent in this text. I'm going to read most of this paragraph, but at least if you're in the parking lot, you have a job, and at home, you can follow along too here. Here's your job. Every time I say the word husband or wife, your job is to say the word marriage. Let's practice. Husband. Marriage. Wife. Marriage. Oh, that's, that's easy. And then it's even easier because the second thing I want you to do is every time I say the word church, I just want you to repeat that. So church, church. Okay, here we go. I'm going to read this text. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands. It's good. You guys are doing pretty good. Got, got a few more here. Get, kind of get engaged here. Don't, don't sound so like, well, I don't know. You, you don't sound very good now. Just sound better. Okay, <laughs> so let's keep going here. Husbands, marriage. love your wives. Marriage. Good, that's better. Just as Christ loved the church. church. Good, and gave himself up for her. Now, there's not going to be a word for a few phrases here. So Jesus gave himself up for her, the church, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the, through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, church. without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. We're, we're almost done. Just track with me here. And the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So hopefully you're getting a sense here. He, he goes back and forth. In fact, I counted how many times he goes back and forth. It's six. So sometimes when you watch sporting matches, the announcers will say, well, there's been five lead changes. There's been six lead changes. It goes back and forth six different times. I, I almost imagine it's like a ping pong match. Just six different times does it go back and forth. So how exactly do we think about this passage? So I'm going to give you another sports analogy here. I think there's a really interesting way to interpret this passage. So I want you to imagine golf for just a minute. Let's imagine that this is where the ball is on the green, and this is where the hole is on the green. So a good golfer, when he's setting up his putt or her putt, he'll go on this end, and he'll look at the ball, and he'll get down really low, and he'll look at the ball and as it relates to the hole, and he'll try to figure out the slope. And then if he or she is a really good golfer, he'll actually go to the other side, on this side of the hole, and he'll get down really low, and he'll look back from the hole towards the ball. And if he can look in both directions, what happens is he has a really good sense of where the ball is and where the hole is and the slope between. I think that the way that a golfer analyzes his putt is how to analyze this text. 
So the first thing I want to do is I want to come over here and I want to ask the question, what do we know about Jesus and the church? And then after we answer that question, I want to look through this lens and then try to answer some questions about marriage. So question one, what do we know about Jesus and the church? I'm going to give you four things. First thing we know about Jesus and the church is that Jesus pursued the church. Like he didn't wait for her to make the first move. He's the one that took the initiative. So for example, John chapter one, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus takes the first step. He pursues her. Number two, Jesus sacrifices everything for the church. Another familiar passage, Philippians two. Jesus was in very nature God but he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. So Jesus, he sacrifices everything for the church. He gives up his home. He gives up his comfort. He gives up his limitless nature to adopt a body. Sacrifice. Number three, Jesus dies for the church. So he pursues the church. He sacrifices for the church. He actually dies for the church. Like he, he gives up truly everything, like his own very life. Romans 5 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And not only did he die for the church, he didn't want the church to be stuck in fear and in condemnation, so he set us free. So we have this amazing verse in Romans chapter 8 that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Jesus, because he died for us. So Jesus pursued the church. He sacrificed himself for the church. He died for the church. And then number four, he empowers the church. So you have a passage like where Jesus says, you will be my witnesses throughout the ends of the earth. And then Jesus says, I'm going to be with you always to the very end of the age. So in other words, Jesus empowers the church to be the best version of herself she could possibly be. Jesus pursues the church. He sacrifices for the church. He dies for the church, and he empowers the church. Now let's go over here to marriage. I want to read this text to you one more time, and now I want you to think about marriage in light of what you know about the church. Here's what Paul says again, Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's a pretty radical definition of marriage. So, so based on this passage, what exactly is the foundation of a really healthy marriage? Well, it's not attraction. It's not common interests. It's not having a good sense of humor. It's not being really, really good looking. Based on this passage, the foundation of a marriage is when there is mutual pursuit where husbands and wives lay down their own interests and they step into the world of the other. They pursue each other. And good marriages are based on sacrifice, where again, the husband and the life, they sacrifice their time, they sacrifice their energy, they sacrifice their money, they sacrifice their interests to lift up the other. Number three, the foundation of a marriage is not just sacrifice, but it's a willingness to die for the other. And let me just say, I, I think there's a lot of married people that if I asked you, would you be willing to die for your spouse? You would say, absolutely. But there's another kind of death. I, I would almost say that not the capital D, death, but more of a lowercase d, death. And, and what I mean by that, this is when you commit to marry someone, you are choosing to love them through the, the many deaths 
like lowercase d, deaths that happen throughout your life, like the loss of health, like the loss of job, like the loss of hearing, like aging bodies, like when you really commit yourself to another person, you are committing to them through all things. Like, like when I do weddings for people, it's usually a young person staring into the face of another young person, and they're both young and really good looking and really beautiful, but what's really happening is they're not just committing to the version of themselves at its fullest, they're really committing themselves to the version of their self that's going to lose a lot of things. They're, they're committing to the other on, on empty, or at least that's the way that it's supposed to be. So the foundation of marriage is mutual pursuit. It's sacrifice. It's the willingness to die for the other. And number four, it's empowerment. So for husbands and wives out there, your, your job is to live your life in such a way so that your husband or your wife becomes the best possible version of themselves because they know you. That's your job. Just as Jesus loves the church, Husbands and wives are supposed to look or love each other. Now, let's pause here. Wipe the sweat off. Come to this end. Now, like the golfer, we're going to look back the other direction. So for a minute, let's talk about what a healthy marriage is, and then, then we'll ask the question, what does that mean about our relationship with the church? I'll tell you two stories. Uh, first story is a guy named Chip uh, and a girl named Cindy. Chip and Cindy Altamas. They were married in 1990, fell in love, but as happens all too often, about 10 years into the marriage, it wasn't going well. They didn't spend a lot of time together anymore. They, they, they didn't really like each other anymore. They would say that they had fallen out of love. They didn't feel attracted to the other. And so at 10 years, they decided to separate. Two or three years after that, they decided that they were going to see other people, even though they hadn't officially got divorced. Five years later, Chip finds himself having kidney failure. Goes to the hospital, doesn't have a lot of friends, doesn't have a lot of families, gets on the transplant list, but it, it goes downhill really, really, really quickly, and it is very dire. So one day, Chip's in the hospital, and who walks in the door but Cindy, his separated wife. And it's amazing what Cindy says to Chip. She says, I don't really like you and I don't love you, but technically we're not divorced and so I guess you're still my husband and so you can have my kidney. And so they do this kidney transplant and Cindy gives Chip her kidney and then they have to recover in the same room together and it's amazing how they describe that part of the story. In their words, what they say is we had to spend so many hours in this room recovering from this surgery together that somehow mysteriously we fell back in love. And this coming October, Chip and Cindy will have been married for 27 years. It's a great story about marriage. I'll tell you one more story about marriage. This is John and Ann uh, Bater. They're from the, the Northeast. Uh, Ann grew up in Pennsylvania. And when she's 17 years old, she's born in 1932. When she's 17 years old, her dad arranges a marriage with her and this guy that is a friend of the family, a, a really bright guy, wealthy guy. And so the dad of Anne arranges this marriage, and just before the day of the wedding, Anne runs away. She elopes with this guy named John. Well, obviously, Anne's dad is super, super angry, and he calls her up, how could you do this? How could you disgrace our family? This is the worst mistake of your life. This marriage is not going to last. It's going to be ruined. There's, there's no way this is going to go well. 
Anne and John died last year after they had been married for 86 years. 86 years. Again, another great story about marriage. Now, neither Chip and Cindy nor John and Anne, it's not like they had perfect marriages, but these are really inspiring stories. And it's amazing when you can look at a story of a really good marriage and it just makes you feel good about life. But here's my question. What do really good stories of marriage tell us about Jesus and his relationship with the church? Okay, think about this. The truth is, Jesus loves his church way, way more than John loves Anne, even though John loved Anne for 86 years. And Jesus loves his church way, way more than Chip loves Cindy, and Cindy loves Chip, even though Cindy gave Chip a kidney. And the truth is, Jesus loves his church more than I love my wife, Mary. And you can even put in your mind right now the, the image of like the married couple that you aspire to be. I just wish I could be like that couple. Jesus loves his church more than that couple loves each other. Jesus' love of his church is it's deeper, it's, it's, it's more profound, it's more patient, it's more generous than any version of love that you could possibly call into your mind. So what exactly does that, does that mean for us today? Well, it does, it just begs a very simple question. How are you treating the bride of Christ? You see, what this means is that when we bicker with each other and when we argue with one another and when we gossip about one another and when we ascribe false motives to each other, and when we get in all of these kinds of arguments, whether that be in person or online with each other, then what we're really doing is we're tainting the bride of Christ. Jesus loves the church more than the greatest husband and the greatest wife on earth love each other. And so the question is, how are you treating the body of Christ? How are you treating the bride of Christ? You know, as a minister, one of my favorite things to do is, is I get to do a lot of weddings. I like doing them. I'll tell you my favorite part of the wedding. It's when the bride walks down the aisle. And I get to stand right next to the groom. It's an amazing moment. Usually I know the girl from some other context that, that I'm about to do, to do the wedding for. She's a friend. She's someone that grew up in my youth group. And it could be that she's just an acquaintance. But in that moment, for those 30, 45 seconds, when she's walking down the aisle, I am seeing her through the lens of the groom. And it's amazing. For, for just that moment, I'm seeing her as this radiant, beautiful, wonderful woman. And I, I have to wonder, is it possible to see the church through the eyes of, of Jesus? And so here's, I'm just going to give you one pretty simple prayer that you can start praying and, and it's this it's it's lord help me see my church as your bride in fact i just want you to say that out loud with me help it's help me see my church as your bride say that with me help me see my church as your bride say it with me again help me see my church as your bride one more time help me see my church as your bride. I want you to start praying that prayer this week because I really believe 
it'll actually start to change the way that we treat each other. In fact, just to practice, I'm going to give you a few scenarios. And after these three or four or five scenarios, you're going to respond with that phrase. Help me see my church as your bride. Here's scenario number one. When you walk through the parking lot or maybe you walk through Walmart and you see that church person and they're supposed to say hi to you, but they don't say hi to you, you're going to pray what? Help me see my church as your bride. This might be for a younger audience here, but we'll still say it. When your best friend starts flirting with the guy she knows you like, what are you going to pray? Help me church as your bride. When the preacher doesn't preach on your favorite subject, you're going to pray, help me see my church as your bride. When somebody in this church needs your help over and over and over and over and over again, you're going to pray, help me. And finally, last one I'll say is this. When somebody you love posts, something that you hate, you're going to pray, help me. Let's pray. Father, you end, or your son ends the Lord's prayer with those famous words that we are to ask for forgiveness from you as we forgive other people. So Father, would you forgive our sins as we in turn forgive those who have sinned against us? Father, our prayer today is very, very simple. As we move throughout life and as we see people, as we see our brothers and sisters in Christ and as we see people we know well, and even as we see people we don't know well, Father, would you help us see these church people as your bride? And can we stand with you at the altar and see this, this beautiful, not perfect, but beautiful, vibrant group of people that you died for would you help us see the church the way you see the church in the name of jesus christ we pray amen